Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, we were just expecting writer Stephanie Johnson in 2015, but we were also graced by the presence of her satirical alter ego, Amanda Toiwi Reinhardt Carlton, the National Party Poet Laureate. Kia ora, everyone. My uh, topic for this evening um, is holding the line. In her most recent novel, The Wolf Border, the British writer Sarah Hall has a character think to herself, no one is without choice, no one is condemned to be changeless. This sentiment is pertinent to our theme, holding the line, because the thing about lines is that they change. Lines of war, lines of argument, lines for actors, lines in the sand, lines of cocaine, all are mutable. And one line that we all know that has not changed, that is held out here in West Auckland by one Murray Gray, who has manned the ramparts of Going West for nearly 20 years, His continued devotion to this festival has enriched and delighted thousands of readers and offered support and nourishment to hundreds of writers. To you, Murray, with gratitude. And on behalf of us bookish people, I'd also like to thank Naomi McCleary, Anna Farmerson, Robin Mason, Penny Hartle and the team, including those that volunteer their time and effort for what is the oldest festival in Auckland. In 1996, when I was in my mid-thirties, with my second novel, The Heart's Wild Surf, clasped under one arm, I ventured out to the Corbins estate to attend what was the inaugural festival. I remember an enthusiastic porphyry, a large, dark, cavernous space, and lots of discussion and laughter. It was midwinter, and outside our breath frosted, but it was warm and welcoming inside. I was on a panel with the famous Westie Deborah Daly and the soon-to-be-famous Emily Perkins, who was there with her first book, Not Her Real Name. At question time, Emily fielded a question from a young man who asked her if she took a tape recorder to parties, since her recall of conversations seemed so alarmingly precise. And since then, I have attended this festival both as an audience member and a guest, On one memorable occasion, I was on the famous train, stopping for readings at various locations along the way. A lady poet, newly in love with a historian, read a poem about how her discarded discarded bra lay on the floor while they made passionate love. A prominent Aucklander of Scots descent, whose ancestors lost their land in the clearances, thought he might return and make a land claim. The artist and potter Barry Brickle inspected the structure of a restaurant. While we ate at a table below, he prowled the beams above our heads. I treasure a vase he gave me as a present that evening. All of us have anecdotes to share. At Going West, we are fed not only with words, but with beautiful food, much appreciated by half-starved writers. And I applaud the current exhibition And I think it's high time that the memories of Going West were collected and published before they fade with time. Lines, then. The holding on to them 
and the letting go. In New Zealand, we have public figures such as Richard Preble, Paula Bennett, and the current Prime Minister, who were nurtured by our once highly regarded cradle-to-the-grave social welfare system. We can all presume, as writers and readers and students of the human heart, that at one stage of their lives, they were glad of their warm beds, free schooling and health care. Let us imagine for a moment we are writing a novel about such a person and lines are appearing in front of us as we type or wield a pen. Here is our character. John is a common enough name, so let's call him that. Here is John as a small boy in 1968, in his grey school shorts and jersey, his scuffed brown Roman sandals, with his lunchbox and bottle of bright orange quench, busy trying to stuff his New Zealand-made rugby boots into his cardboard school bag. Here is his mother at the kitchen sink, washing the cremota pot and telling him how lucky he is that the line extends from the soft sand to the hard and encircles him, that his health and success at school will be taken care of by the state, his teeth filled and his vaccinations given. Or perhaps the scene is different. Perhaps little Johnny's mother is grubbing potatoes from the frozen soil and warning him not to end up like her, dependent on the state. Perhaps she is sad and a little embittered, lonely and trapped, and she tells him he must work hard, make lots of money, and not be foolish enough to share it with malingerers. Whatever, she gives him a political line to follow. For our purpose, let it be the first mother with the porridge pot who cautioned gratitude and generosity. What happened to make him change his mind? Why did his line change? As writers, we must give him a scene or scenes where that motivation is given, where we give the character the, necessity, the necessary stimulus to think another way and force the line on the graph to the right. Did he sit beside a smelly, unloved and homeless man on the bus and think, I won't end up like you? Did he visit the warm, loving home of a school friend whose much older father had come back from the war, too damaged to work, and sponged off the state thereafter, or so his uncle possibly told him as he worked a 40-hour week in a badly paid menial job? Or is our character a child called Paula, young enough to grow up after the introduction in 1973 of the solo parents' benefit? This little girl is a flappy ears, hanging round the grown-ups. She hears a conversation about a woman with children to more than one man, who drinks too much, who smokes pot, who is on the benefit, and she thinks how wrong that is. She listens to talk about how welfareism has damaged Māori, how people must be taught to shift for themselves, and in the absolute mind, absolutist mindset of some children, there really is a monster under the bed, she decides that if she ever has the opportunity, she'll pull the ladder up after her. Or should we meet instead a fully grown man called Richard, sitting at his desk and contemplating the carefully accrued wealth of the nation, the railways, printing office, mines, dairy factories and forests, and thinking of the short-term gains and selling it all? What punitive delight rises in his heart as he begins to disperse our carefully shepherded wealth to the four corners of the globe? Such a reversal in his political line would have to have deep roots, or what they call in writing formulae, 
foreshadowing, which good writers do anyway without knowing the word for it. Let's say Richard is a deceptive person who has only ever paid lip service to the policies of his party. He forgets for a moment, as many governments have since, that he is our servant and not the other way round. He sees the hard work of our ancestors and the sense of community that they hold dear as something to be dispensed with. Perhaps he is sitting by the fire reading Atlas Shrugged, one of the most dangerous novels of the last century. Or did he change his politics for love, let a little blue seep into the pink, merging his colours and tangling his lines and confusing my metaphor? Let us abandon for a moment our confused characters who were mostly born in the mid-20th century and leap ahead to our future where today's preschoolers are in their 30s, say 2045. It is interesting to speculate whether or not the spectrum of left and right still exists or whether it has been discarded in favour of corporate governance following on from the neoliberal so-called transitional governments of today. Are they reading books? this generation? Do they find pleasure in absorbing themselves in lengthy narratives? Where do they go when they want to escape? Do they read, regard book-length works as TLDR? Too long, didn't read. Because after all, Yola and linear stories are boring. What is fiction if it isn't linear? Now and again, reviewers and publicists extol a novel for its revolutionary form, for its challenging of all the accepted forms, anti-narrative, interactive. But on inspection, sometimes disappointingly, these novels are still what they have always been, lines on a page with intersecting webs of meaning and connection running in the subtext. In a scene in my novel, The Writers' Festival, a five-year-old girl swipes the window of, of the car with one finger as her mother drives along, as if she's flicking through Tumblr, as if the window is a screen and she's shifting the image. It was something my daughter observed on trams in Melbourne more than once, and since the publication of the book, I have heard of other children doing the same thing. Is it just play? Or is there, in fact, a major revolution taking place in the way human beings perceive the world? We hear often that the market is apparently demanding seamless transition from cyberspace to the real world, that we want the line blurred by wearable technology in the form of smart watches or tiny mind-reading devices inserted in the ear that advertise products or forge connections based on existing personal data or cyber spectacles controlled by movements of the eyeball? Is it a deep-seated human desire for indolence that is powering these developments? Or is it more a deep-seated loneliness that has us crave constant communication with others, instant and easy? When I was a teenager in the 70s, as labour and commerce underwent increasing mechanisation, there was a momentary prediction that we would eventually evolve to have tiny little wasted bodies and giant heads. Now it seems even our giant heads will not be necessary since we no longer, since, at least not to serve our memories, since we no longer need to commit anything to them. 
In previous centuries, we would be in awe of the work of certain writers, marvel at the breadth of their knowledge and understanding. Now we have the Google novel, where it is sometimes apparent that the writer's knowledge of his or her period is only skin deep, where facts have been sourced as needed, the lengthy reading of tangential research material that yields a richer comprehension of how folk lived is not in evidence. The World Wide Web brings with it far-reaching changes, not only to our traditional understanding and respect for good memories, but also to our notions of privacy, courtesy and identity. The nature of conversation has changed. No longer do we need to argue about a date or who said what or sang which song, go online and you'll know in a jiffy. It is now no longer considered rude to send a text or scan or email or Twitter while we're in flesh and blood company. Whole families sit about texting. Cafes are silent. Recently, I went to a noisy cafe in Byron Bay, Australia, which had a sign on the wall, no, we don't have Wi-Fi. Talk to each other. <laughs> Hopefully this will catch on. <clears throat> what about those intersecting lines of communication, about what these intersecting lines of communication and knowledge are doing to our own computers, the ones that we are born with, our brains? Around the world, neuroscientists are beginning to send out warnings. Last year, the British neuroscientist Dame Susan Greenfield published her book, Mind Change. In it, she maintains that she and other neuroscientists are seeing physiological changes in the brains of children and young people, changes that she directly associates with frequent use of social media. Just as London cabbies with the knowledge famously had swollen parts of the brain that hold working memory, the hippocampus, neuroscientists are seeing larger, larger amygdala in the brains of young people who spend hours of every day online. The amygdala is the part of the brain usually linked to emotionally charged memory, emotional behaviour and motivation. She writes... Researchers found that the grey matter density of one particular brain region, the amygdala, was linked to social network size in the real world and also correlated with a subject's online social network size. We know that the brain is plastic, that it will adapt to any given environment, real or cyber. And what is this rapid, shallow engagement doing to our thought processes? Greenfield again. With thought... There is a beginning, a middle and an end in a specified linear sequence in a cause-effect chain. Any thought, be it fantasy, a memory, a logical argument, a business plan, a hope or a grievance, all share this basic common characteristic of fixed sequence. And since there is clearly a defined beginning, middle and end, there has to be a time frame. As I see it, it is this idea of sequence that is the very quintessence of a thought and it is the mental steps that are needed that will distinguish a line or train of thought from a one-off instantaneous emotion captured in a shriek of laughter or a scream. If you place a human brain with its evolutionary mandate to adapt to its environment in an environment where there is no obvious linear sequence, where facts can be accessed at random, where everything is reversible, where the gap between stimulus and response is minimal, and above all, where time is short, then your train of thought could be derailed. Needless to say, Greenfield's book is controversial, and not least so with the industries now clustering around the iTech honeypot. 
There are vast sums of money to be made from every stage of human life, iPads that attach to the cot through to gadgets that record geriatric heartbeat and urine flow and lodge the data in the cloud. I don't want to get too sidetracked into talking about the web because, like most of you, I have welcomed it into my life and revel in the beauties it affords us. Apart from my own entertainment and research, I'm grateful for the emergence of online pressure groups like Avaaz, Action Station, Some of Us and Get Up. These are the protest lines we will increasingly march behind. When millions of signatures worldwide can force a corporation to delay or even halt some planet-destroying activity, when governments can be pushed into not signing deals with Shell and Monsanto can be shamed, these are wonderful expressions of democracy at its best. No wonder many commentators suspect that the top-secret TPPA includes a section on regulating online protest. What does little Johnny carry in his school bag? Now he's all grown up. Where he once carried a crayon picture of Captain Cook or a hunter shooting a lion, does he now have files of legal advice on dismantling indigenous and environmental law, on how to untangle the treaty, how to outlaw protest? Off he goes with Timmy Grocer playing at big boys to sign us all away. Now I'm sure that amongst you, all there are some National Party voters, and I don't want you to feel out of place. And so to that end, I've invited along my fellow writer, Amanda Toiwi Reinhardt Carlton, who is the inaugural National Party poet, not to be confused with C.K. Stead, the Poet Laureate. Some of you might have seen her on Facebook or heard her read before. Amanda has the health and well-being of the current government close to her heart, and she's going to read two poems, only two. So just wait one moment while I go and find her. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. I am Amanda Toiwi Reinhardt Carlton, and I am the inaugural National Party poet. I was selected by Julie Christie. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of you are very jealous because I get rather a lot of money. <laughs> and since we are in a reflective mood this evening, I'm going to read two poems from early in my career as National Party poet. And this is a poem I wrote out of love for the party in the last elections. <laughs> Elegy for what we were. When I was a girl, Holyoke was PM, and I loved him. How I loved him for his name, Holy Oak. The lovely way he spoke, his funky platform shoes. For the first 12 years of my life, the tiny, kindly king of the land was Holy Oak. In Rimuera and Fendleton, and Kelburn and Maori Hill, summer lawns were mowed. There was tennis in the afternoons, gin and tonic on the terrace. Around the Sunday table, the middle classes debated care for the sick, the poor, the elderly, the necessity of education for all, the socialist ideal. How strange to find us now, led by a man called Key, who would unlock it, 
let it all ebb away. Just lately, when among the party faithful, I see the ghost of Kiwi Keith, red-faced, choked on Slater's slime, sickened by whale oil's hackapals, the lies, corruption, deceit. Oh, spread your boughs over our shamed heads, holy oak. Though you made your own mistakes, sent our boys to Nam, old man, caused a riot. Still, this is something new, is it not? The elevation of cruelty, celebration of mendacity. Let us grieve for the lost heart of the National Party. You may clap. Of course, things haven't always been this bad. In 2013, our Prime Minister made a glorious visit to Buckingham Palace and the resulting photograph, which I saw was in the Herald again this morning, was beamed all round the world. And this is a poem that I wrote. Like Harry was asked to write a poem for his friends who were getting married, I was asked to write a poem about John's visit to the Queen, September 2013. I was nervous, John, I admit, about your visit to the Queen. I thought you might embarrass us all, but not at all, it seems, not at all. She's my cousin, of course, very distant, so I wrote to her, Dear Lizzie, please excuse our Prime Minister's exuberance. Dear lad, so excited you may register a protuberance. A power delights him, no matter how nominal. Control by the rich, delicious idea. Such sweetly medieval laws he's been passing. No protest at sea to stop the drilling and the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement will shortly end. Protest on leaned. I'm blue, Lizzie, as Tory as you, but still it worries me it looks sick. National to nationalist is only a little slip. Bother the Chinese, Lizzie, the Australians, and the boys from Brazil with their giant drill. Remember when Mother England put us to the breast and NZ was a happy child, sated, at rest, not a fretful babe, listless, apathetic. I wrote to John too, a personal friend. Dear John, stop now, dear. No more selling us down the street. No more pretending at Balmoral that all is well. All is well. Most plainly, it is not in the houses of the poor, John, the children, the children. Did Liz give you a corgi to cuddle? Did she sympathise with your lot? Oh, here's my breast, John. Take it, though it's droopy and long. I'll rock you to sleep and sing you a song. I think you'll agree that Amanda Toe, Ewe, Reinhardt, Carlton is someone you really only want in short doses. Um, and how are you all going listening? You've been sitting there for a long time and I thought I'd just share this little beautiful quote with you. Um, 
which is from David Lodge's 2008 novel, Death Sentence, and he writes that experiments have demonstrated that the average span for receiving continuous speech from one speaker is 20 minutes, and that it diminishes the more closely the discourse resembles written prose with its greater density of information and reduced redundancy. I just thought you'd like to know that, and it may come in handy next time you're at a writer's festival such as this one, and you find your concentration wavering. Earlier this year, I interviewed Chinese writer Shinran for that other, certain other festival that happens down there. Um, her book, Buy Me the Sky, about the effects of the one-child policy on Chinese society, returns us to many, in many ways to Greenfield's book, Mind Change. In China, the one-child policy has coincided with the advent of modern technologies so that the more recent generations are called the three screens generations, growing up with the mobile phone, the computer and the television. Many of them are at once overconnected with the outside world and totally isolated in their home life, which Shinran believes has created a kind of cold-hearted immorality. These generations bear all the hopes and ambition of six adults, mum and dad, and both sets of grandparents being their only family, and are so closeted and spoiled that many of them are almost unable to function in the real world. It's my contention that if the situation in China is deep purple, then in the West, it's lilac. Many of us know young people whose social lives take place almost entirely online, Parents of even very young children weather frequent stressful blow-ups over excessive screen time. We witness children in pushchairs, oblivious to the passing street, their entire consciousness hooked into smeary iPads. Hospitality workers will tell you how, for about two years now, children no longer run about and get underfoot in restaurants because they're, int they're intent on their devices, neither conversing with the adults or getting into trouble or meeting the eye of the waiter when he takes their order. As Shinran and I were chatting in the green room, she passed on to that certain other festival, her husband Toby Edie's greetings and congratulations not only for surviving but for growing larger. Toby is a London literary agent. He had told her that writers' festivals all over the world are starting to crumble. And I gathered that these failing festivals are not like this one or like that other one, in that they were started at grassroots level by book lovers and writers. And in fact, although it may seem traitorous to some of you, Murray was one of the original people who gathered together to get the Auckland Writers' Festival on the road until he decided that his loyalties lay with you fellas. It is inevitable that the character of writers' festivals will change and adapt with changes of technology and aesthetics as the nature of publishing changes and indeed to meet what the market demands. I think we must be cautious about accepting what we are told the market wants. There needs to be no compulsion to adopt new invasive technologies. Let us spend a moment with that adult in 2045, the character we could develop for a novel. Perhaps she is part of a new social elite, a socio-economic group who learn to regulate their online lives and to eschew neurological damage in favour of a pursuit of peace and of the recently rediscovered virtue of privacy. To conclude, I'd like to read 
a short excerpt from my new book, The Writers' Festival, which I think sums up pretty well why we here, at this moment and in this era, cherish these occasions. Going West is not just a book festival, it's a commons, a place where people can come together to encounter new ideas and ways of thinking, a place where revolutions, big and small, can be fomented. So this is just a, the, a tiny little couple of paragraphs um, from the very beginning. In January, he gets on a flight and they let him go. There is no sudden boarding of the plane while it sits still on Chinese soil, no dragging down long corridors to beatings and closed rooms. There will be no gang of thugs to meet him in Taiwan or Hong Kong to administer the punishment he has endured so many times. He's free. He knows it as he's never let himself know it before. He is as free as the rest of the world will allow him to be. He has received invitations already to speak at literary festivals in the West, in America, in Europe, in Oceania, at those extraordinary occasions where the world's writers and all combinations meet and mingle and talk to enormous audiences, sometimes numbering in their thousands where writers take to the stage singly or in groups and are politely questioned about their work, when challenges and queries rise from the floor and are met with good humour from the stage, without fear. One invitation is from a country he has heard very little about, a country so far away that he has never before entertained any notion of it. It is the last country, he understands, ever to be added to the map of the world, the very last and even there, they have writers' festivals. Thank you. This has been an archival recording from the Going West Writers' Festival. Thanks for listening.